This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. We know that hyperlipidemia is one of the major risk factors for cardiovascular disease, and very effective treatment for hyperlipidemia is available and proven to be effective in reducing the complications of cardiovascular disease. Yet it's estimated that over 12% of the adult population in the U.S. still has a total cholesterol over 240, and more than 18% have an HDL less than 40. Just over half of individuals who could benefit from pharmacologic therapy for hyperlipidemia are currently on treatment. Here to discuss hyperlipidemia and its treatment is Dr. Stephen Kopetsky, a preventive cardiologist in the Department of Cardiovascular Disease at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Welcome, Steve. Thank you, Daryl. Well, let's start by talking about the treatment guidelines for hyperlipidemia, because there's some new guidelines out there. The older ones, I don't think anybody was too happy with, with uh, them saying we really should not pay a lot of attention to the levels of HD or LDL, but more go on the uh, uh, potency of the statin. So what do the new guidelines tell us? Well, a couple of big changes, uh, Daryl. One is that the numbers are back. You know, less than 70 LDL is the goal for people with coronary disease. The second thing is, I think the guideline writers realize that we have a very poor risk prediction equation. You know, it's hard for us to predict the future, obviously. Mm -hmm. And so what they've done is keep the guidelines pretty much the same in terms of the four main groups, people with disease, people without disease that have either diabetes or no diabetes or have real high cholesterol like LDL over 190. They've kept that structure together, but they put in more risk modifiers. So patients that have disease, they have risk modifiers to say these are really high risk patients. They need more aggressive therapy, things like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, before we talk about pharmacotherapy, let's talk a little bit about non-pharmacologic therapy. Um, what lifestyle changes should we be recommending to our patients with hyperlipidemia? Well, in general, the two things are really essential. One is diet. Diet now is the number one risk factor for early disease and early death in the United States. It's passed up blood pressure, cholesterol, smoking, etc. So diet is really important and more of a, a fruits and vegetables. We recommend a lot of uh, like what people call a Mediterranean diet. Mm -hmm with more olive oil, some nuts every day because it has anti-inflammatory properties. It's very good. It, it reduces a lot of diseases, not just heart disease, also Alzheimer's, many cancers, other things. So that's very important. And also to get away from the processed foods, that's quite important. And uh, try to eat um, you know, at least five fruits or veggies a day. Mm -hmm. The second thing is physical activity. You know, We have no fountain of youth, but physical activity is about as close as we can get to it. And there are two realms we talk to patients about. One is don't be sedentary. So every hour, get up and walk. You know, don't send a, a message or an email to your colleague. Walk you know, down the hall and talk to him or something mm -hmm. like that. And secondly, try to be vigorously active for at least 10 minutes uh, every day or two days. And we say vigorously active, especially for busy patients. I tell them about intervals where they go real hard for, say, 30 or 60 seconds and then back off and get their breath back. Just do that three times in 10 minutes, and that will do a lot to help. Okay. All right. How about weight loss? Where does that fit in? Weight loss is a very interesting and somewhat controversial subject in that uh, everyone, everybody has a diet book out now. And if you look at the data in terms of if you take someone that's physically fit as judged by a treadmill test, 
they can go 100% of what they're supposed to go, their weight doesn't really matter in terms of their longevity. Uh, it may have other effects, but not in terms of their longevity. So if you can get physically fit, you know, weight is a secondary issue, probably because mm-hmm. as you get fit, you lose a lot of your abdominal fat, which is what causes a, a lot of problems. Sure. Okay. Let's talk about the patient that we struggle with. Um, these are patients who have kind of a marginal LDL cholesterol, you know, 120, 135, mm-hmm. and we recommend lifestyle changes, and either they haven't made any or they've tried and nothing's improved. Your, your numbers are the same. Where do you go then to decide how aggressive to be with your therapy? Yeah, that's a good question. First of all, I think it's important to treat them very gently. <laughs> I mean, uh, we have uh, have some data that shows that patients feel that they're kind of hopeless and helpless with changing their cholesterol, mm-hmm. with diet and such. And they come to the doctor or the caregiver and they get a finger wag and say, you're not trying hard enough. And, and that just, you know, that just doesn't work, unfortunately. So what we do now, there's risk modifiers that they've been put into the guidelines. And um, in fact, they're called risk enhancers. So if patients come in and we ask them about things that aren't included in the equation, which is the usual, you know, do you smoke, do you have diabetes, do you have blood pressure, what's your cholesterol? Ask them about family history, very important. Uh, Women's issues have made it now into the guidelines, you know, preeclampsia, early menopause, which is very important. Ask about chronic kidney disease, because we know that's a very pro-inflammatory thing. And remember, a GFR less than 60 is included as chronic kidney disease, because it increases your risk. Uh, Look for things like inflammatory diseases, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, psoriatic arthritis, and even just degenerative joint disease can increase your risk, because it's a pro-inflammatory state. Uh, Ethnicity, we know, has gotten to be a big deal. Uh, South Asians, uh, for the same risk factors, the South Asian has much higher risk than a, a Caucasian, Euro-Caucasian. Uh, there's also issues with uh, how they respond to uh, statins. Uh, there's some biomarkers that are starting to be pushed by these new guidelines. One is the uh, lipoprotein A. Mm-hmm. If there's a family history of early disease, less than age 65 for a, for a woman, 55 for a man, then think of checking lipoprotein A. And then also check, think of checking an apolipoprotein B. If the triglycerides are high, our calculation for LDL is a little off, and so the ApoB is recommended when the triglycerides are over about 200. And then lastly, uh, other things that are uh, been in prior guidelines like acyl index that's decreased, like HSCRP that's de- that's uh, up over two, um, and then certainly LPA or ApoB that's elevated. So we've got some other factors now to include. And if you're still having trouble, then a CT scan has kind of been put into the equation, and it's been codified. So if you do a CT scan for an intermediate or moderate-risk patient, uh, if they have no calcium, that's good. If they have any calcium, they should have a discussion about maybe you know, more aggressive therapy like statins. And if your calcium is over 100, an absolute score of 100, then statins are recommended. Mm-hmm. I don't order a lot of CT scans, but I have found that that is a very effective test in patients who really should be on a statin, but for some reason they don't want to take one. But showing them the fact that they have some yeah. disease there, that yeah. often changes their mind quite quickly. You're exactly right. Showing someone their scan right. is very effective, much different than just showing them a number or something like that. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the statins. I, I, I consider them one of the <coughs> best class of medications we've seen in, uh, in decades. But mm-hmm. are there significant differences in the statins we have to choose from? 
Well, yes and no. I mean, there are differences that, uh, like lipophilicity or hydrophilicity, uh, some of the pathways, the cytochrome P450 pathway they're metabolized with, but they don't really seem to make much difference in terms of giving, if someone's uh, can't tolerate a hydrophilic, give them a lipophilic, that just doesn't work. There is differences that are based on our own genetics, but we can't test for that, mm-hmm. so it's very difficult. So what we tend to do is see if a patient responds to a certain statin or ask if their family member's ever taken something and responded well. And if they do, uh, fine. If they don't, then try a different one. And when I say they don't respond, that may be, you know, they have side effects like myalgias, or maybe they don't get a good, robust lowering of their LDL. Mm -hmm. Because remember, the LDL reduction is a bell-shaped curve. And all the studies, in fact, every statin study ever done that's looked at this has shown that about 2 or 3% of people that go on a statin, their LDL actually goes up, which is just unheard of. You know, it's not published much. But it's our response to individual statins from an individual person. Does the potency of the statin relate at all to the likelihood of adverse effects? Uh, the weaker ones such as provostatin uh, better tolerated than, say, resuvastatin or atorvastatin? You know, that's, uh, that's been written, but never been verified. Uh, it's pretty much due, the most predictive thing is dose. Mm-hmm. So if you go really high on pravastatin versus very low on resuvastatin, you're probably going to get more side effects from the high-dose prava than the mm-hmm. low-dose resuva. And speaking of dose, when you're using a statin, do you push that to the maximum, or do you switch to a stronger statin? Uh, in general, I don't like to go to the highest dose possible uh, unless the patient, you know, is in agreement and says, yeah, I really want, I like this one. I've been on six others, and I've been, uh, you know, intolerant to all of them. Uh, generally, we'll try to add in azetamibe at that point mm-hmm. rather than go up to the highest possible dose because you're asking for more side effects. Yeah. And you don't really see that dramatic of an increase going from 20 to 40 to 80 with some of these statins. That's exactly right. The rule of thumb is you get about a 6 or 7% increase or a decrease in the LDL when you double the statin dose. Yeah. This is Dr. Anjali Bagra general internist at Mayo Clinic. I'd like to personally invite you to join the GRIT movement for growth, resilience, inspiration, and tenacity in healthcare. We'll be in California this fall at the Ojai Valley Inn. Together, we'll work through evidence-based strategies to promote professional development and enhance personal well-being. If we're going to take ground back from burnout, we need to address the growing need for improved clinician wellness and gender-balanced leadership in our healthcare teams. To find out more about what past attendees are calling a life-changing experience, visit gimeducation.mayo.edu slash GRIT2019. Well, one of the most common adverse effects we see, at least complaints from patients, is myalgias. I mean, they complain about a lot of other things, joint pains and uh, various arm and leg pains that are probably not statin-induced, but myalgias certainly have been associated with statins. How do you deal with the patients who have myalgias with one particular statin? Yeah, that's a very good question, and it's really, you know, incredibly common. Uh, The randomized trials show maybe 2%, but the, the general population, it seems, it's about 15 to 20%. And so what we'll do is get them off of that statin if, they're, if it's intolerant. I mean, everybody has some aches and pains, but stop the statin for a month. Let them wash out completely. 
I've seen too often that you start another one immediately after and it, it kind of still harbors the same symptoms from the first statin. So stop it for a month, restart something different. And uh, it doesn't really matter which one. We tend to stay with the most potent ones, the simvastatin, atorvastatin, and rosuvastatin. Uh, go with low dose with them, and then work up slowly every few months or so. Mm-hmm. That is if they're primary prevention. Secondary prevention, you're kind of stuck. You have to get them on right. something pretty quick. Right. I have found that patients, even who seem to be intolerant of all of the dis- different statins, if you use even a tiny dose of resuvastatin, start it with even once a week, yes. uh, and then gradually go up, uh, you can often accomplish some pretty significant reductions in the LDL. Very true. Uh, and then you add some azetamibe into yeah. it, and they can get, uh, we've had some incredible reductions. Yeah. Azetamibe is an interesting compound. Um, it seems very reliable in terms of reducing the LDL by about 20, 25% uh, in almost everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does that drug compare to the statins and how it works? Well, the um, the way it works is it blocks the absorption of cholesterol in your gut. And so patients will say, oh, doctor, I eat alfalfa sprouts and cardboard. I never eat cholesterol, you know. So I say, but that's, that's okay. What happens is when you do eat something, your body thinks there's fat in there, so it puts out bile, which has a lot of cholesterol in it. So it blocks that, which is a very re- efficient reabsorption process. So the azetamide works very well in combo with the statin. Not quite as good when it's just by itself. Mm -hmm. So if you can, like you mentioned earlier, get maybe one dose a week of a statin in there, long-acting statin like rosuvastatin, which is a half-life of 19 hours, then add azetamide to that, you can get a pretty good reduction. Okay. You may have alluded to this patient a little while ago, but I will occasionally have a patient who you start a statin and their numbers are no better. Mm -hmm. You increase the dose, no better. You start a stronger one, no change. Mm What's going on in those patients? Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, and that clearly there is, I mentioned, a, a differential response genetically based to, to different statins. Almost always you can find some statin that will give some reduction. Uh, always check them, make sure they're not buying generics from abroad that may, be, um, mm-hmm. that may have uh, you know placebo effect or something. But in general, you can find something. Just try different ones and try different combos with it with the, or without the azetamide. How about a select group? Let's talk about the elderly. Um, There's pretty good evidence that secondary prevention, statins are a benefit, but how about primary prevention in the elderly population? Is there any proven benefit to using uh, pharmacotherapy in these papers? Yes, yeah, that's a really good question. And there have been a few studies that looked at this in the older 75 patients, and they found some benefit. Uh, I think the real question we need to ask is the total patient, you know. And I'll ask the fellows and the residents, uh, is if this patient in front of you, this 80-year-old woman, had a heart attack tomorrow, would you take her to the cath lab? If the answer is yes, then I think we ought to try to prevent them from having a, an MI with a statin. And that's, uh, incidentally, the new guidelines actually included patients now over 70. Mm-hmm. In fact, the new guidelines control the whole, they, they go for the whole age spectrum from zero to over 70. And they point out that primary prevention uh, would be helpful if, they, uh, if they're high enough risk and they're a viable patient that you would be aggressive with if they had a heart attack. Mm, okay. How about the PCSK9 inhibitors? That's the one class we haven't touched on. Yes. Those drugs have really added tremendously to our armamentarium for patients in really a single group, the ones with the LDLs greater than 190, which is we're primarily thinking of the familial hypercholesterolemia group. In those patients, it's made a huge difference. You know, uh, patients generally ask me, are you sure these are my numbers, doctor? Are you sure you, this is my blood? <laughs> you know, 
because they see numbers they've never seen before in their life. They've had LDL cholesterols for 250, 280 for years, and now they're 60 or 70, and they're really uh, very pleased with it. They're injectable every two weeks. Uh, it is a, it's an issue with these patients because they have tried so hard for so long to get their LDL down, and they can't. And uh, they're the group, one of the groups I was talking about earlier, that they feel like we're, we, meaning me, the medical profession, is saying to them, you're not trying hard enough, when really it's not diet at all. It's, it's all genetic mm-hmm. in that group of patients. So those drugs work very well. The price uh, came out quite high, about 14000 Now it's down to about 6000 a year, so about $250 a dose. Um, the insurance companies, uh, we have to grapple with them every day. Uh, but surprisingly, I have to grapple almost more with the patients uh, because they have for decades, you know, since 1987, when the first statin, lovastatin, came out in the U.S., they've been told every few years, here's a new drug for you that's going to help you and not hurt you. Mm-hmm. And every time it's given them side effects because we raised the dose so high. And now guess what we're saying? Here's a new drug. It's going to help you and not hurt you. And they say, wait a minute, I've heard this before. Mm-hmm. What adverse effects could we see with the, uh, with the new drugs? Well, with the PCSK9s, a lot of patients will get a a rhinitis, kind of a nasal congestion. After the first few doses, it gets better usually. Uh, Anytime you drop a cholesterol quickly, you can get myalgias. Uh, That can happen. Uh, We've looked very closely for diabetes. We haven't seen that like we've seen with uh, with the statins. We've looked very, very closely for dementia and done some extensive testing here uh, with seven different domains of memory and cognition, have not seen any problems with cognition or memory at all. So it's primarily the, uh, the usual ones, the, a little bit of myalgia, and then the, the nasopharyngitis mm-hmm. uh, type symptoms. Can they be used with statins or azetamibe? Yes. In fact, uh, the FDA approved them in addition to maximally tolerated statins, and the statin actually makes the PCSK9 work better because it raises the LDL receptors, statins do. And the second thing statins do is they raise the PCSK9 levels. So if you give a PCSK9 inhibitor, it actually works better with mm-hmm. the statin on board. Okay. Finally, let's touch on some of the nutritional supplements that have been used with hyperlipidemia. Uh, how about niacin? Yeah, niacin has been a drug that if a patient's on it, they don't want to get off it because they have tried so hard for so many years to tolerate it and work up to the dose that they don't get the flushing with. Mm-hmm. But the studies have shown when given with statins, it may raise HDL a little bit, but it does not lower their event rates. In fact, it may increase intracranial events, you know, adverse intracranial events. So in general, with statins, we're getting people off of it. Mm -hmm. Now, if that's the only drug you can give someone, then that may be an option. How about fish oil? Fish oil, um, the recent REDUCE-IT study showed that patients with with, uh, triglycerides over 200 that still had a good LDL, you know, 70 or below, they actually benefited from fish oil, four grams a day. The controversy now is, is it the pure EPA, the proprietary one that was used in the study, or could it just be generic, over-the-counter uh, EPA, DHA? That study that will give us that answer will be out in about a year. I, I happen to believe that it's just generic uh, EPA, DHA, four grams a day will work just well. Okay. And then how about CoQ10? CoQ10 is interesting. Everybody that goes on a statin, their CoQ10 levels go down, both in their cells and in their uh, bloodstream. Uh, But CoQ10 doesn't really seem to help in randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trials to reduce uh, muscle aches. But if patients believe it helps them, I say fine, take it. It's not the cheapest supplement. No, it's not the cheapest. And it's a big molecule. You have to take it a couple times a day. You can't take it all at once. 
Well, Steve, our audience is primary care providers, and if you had to summarize, you know, just a minute or so, what would you like to tell them about management of hyperlipidemia? Well, I think the the hyperlipidemia, uh, one of the key things is that diet is the number one risk factor now, and that we have shown, or it's been shown in studies, that even if you have your LDL under control, if you're not eating healthy, the bottom 40% of the poor eaters don't get benefit in terms of reduced MI or stroke risk. They, they're, although their numbers do look better. So it's very, very important is diet and lifestyle. That's, this shall be added to diet and lifestyle. Second thing is if they have, uh, if they're secondary prevention, those patients we need to be aggressive with, which means any, any vascular bed has disease, uh, except coronary calcium is not included in that. Uh, the third thing would be that if they don't have disease, then try to do their risk calculator uh, f- see what their risk is from the standard uh, AS uh, or uh, you know, AHA ACC risk calculator plus. And uh, if they are high risk, over 10% or so start to think of being aggressive with them. Over 20% it's really recommended giving a statin. In that middle range, try to do other modifiers. Some of these risk modifiers we talked about, the, the clinical things, do a CT scan, ask about family, do some other testing. And if those are positive, then certainly think of adding a statin into them. But we just can't overemphasize enough the importance of taking the pill because mm-hmm. we know that about 80% of the patients we give a prescription to will get it filled, 20% won't. After the first three months, about half of them won't get the second prescription filled. Yeah. So our patients are not taking it, although we think maybe yours are, but mine aren't doing that. <laughs> no, I don't think mine are any different. You know, So we have to be diligent with the patients, and, and don't be too hard on them. You know, we found that when we're finger-wagging at the patients, they really they kind of back off. They don't really want to want to deal with it uh be a little friendlier and say listen this is a team approach here let's talk about what we can do to help you we've been discussing the management of hyperlipidemia with dr stephen kopetsky a preventive cardiologist at mayo clinic steve thanks for sharing your expertise with us thanks for having me if you've enjoyed mayo clinic talks podcasts please subscribe stay healthy and see you next week